Hi, and welcome back to the last episode of Behind Biotech's Season 2 feature on China Biotech. Over the past season, we've met investors, founders, and C-suite leaders of the next generation of biotech companies that have their roots across the world, but aspirations to go beyond borders. We are delighted to have on our show today Dr. Hong Tong, the Chief Medical Officer and co-founder of On Quality Pharmaceuticals. I love this interview with Dr. Tong, where we covered her educational roots in traditional Chinese medicine, her role in leading medical affairs for Optivo at BMS, and her work now in focusing oncology drug development on the holistic treatment of the cancer patient at Onquality Pharmaceuticals. After today's episode, we're going to take a break to focus on the next iteration of Behind Biotech. We promise it'll be bigger and better than before, and we're looking forward to sharing what's to come with you. Hi everyone. Today we're thrilled to welcome Dr. Hong Tong, co-founder and CMO of Onquality Pharmaceuticals as part of our China Biotech series. Dr. Tong is the chief medical officer and co-founder of Onquality Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Tong is a board-certified internal medicine physician with more than 15 years experience in both drug development as well as medical affairs and conducted all phases of clinical trials. She served as VP executive medical director, medical director, and medical officer in Dendrion, Juno, Estellas, BMS, and the NIH. On quality pharmaceuticals is designing targeted cancer supportive care treatments aimed at preventing and treating the intolerable side effects caused by specific cancer drugs. Their mission is to make fighting cancer easier by alleviating the side effects of anti-cancer therapy so the patients can continue cancer treatment and live with a better quality of life. On Quality is based in Seattle and Shanghai. Dr. Tong received her medical degree in traditional Chinese medicine in Hefei, China, and pursued her graduate study in Western medicine in Guangzhou, China, and at the University of Texas in San Antonio. She is also board certified in internal medicine and practiced as an internist in Indiana for almost seven years. Thanks again for joining us, Dr. Tong. We're super excited to have you today. Thank you for having me. Great. So let's start with your personal story first. Dr. Tong, you grew up in China and initially studied traditional Chinese medicine. And this is an interesting, uh, this is certainly an interesting path that we haven't heard of much in our series in um, on entrepreneurs and co-founders of biotech companies so far. So tell us a little bit more about that. Tell us more about how you got started in studying traditional Chinese medicine and what piqued your interest and whether or not your studies in traditional Chinese medicine influenced you your outlook on the practice of medicine and drug development later in your career? Sure. Yeah, I, I, I grew up in China and uh, ended up studying Chinese medicine by accident in a way. Maybe, um, who knows, <laughs> maybe my destiny. So in China, you know, you go through a matching program. So I um, tried to get into the pharmacology program. For some reason, they assigned me to the Chinese medicine program. So, you know, by that time, I guess I really don't have a choice anymore, but I, I ended up liking it. I feel that um, experiences actually shaped uh, my uh, outlook on practicing medicine and even drug development. Um, what does that mean is if I see a patient, I often more look at it uh, from a holistic point of view, not only just treat the disease, but also look at how to managing 
uh, side effects and even emotional well-being. So more look at the patient as a whole, as a whole, in addition to treating the disease. So that could be the reason also why I uh, having on quality to aiming at uh, uh, developing medications for cancer therapy induced side effects. I can definitely see how that relates to your current work at on quality pharmaceuticals, where the point is not only to get uh, patients through their chemotherapy and to have them survive their cancer and, or live longer with their cancer, but also have them thrive and not have to deal with the side effects of chemotherapy and have a greater quality of life. I think that's something that all oncologists would like to strive for, although we don't have great solutions for that, um, currently with the standard of practice or standard of care. So I, I certainly see how your early study contributed to your current position um, at Unquality. And um, you took an interesting trajectory after, even after you studied traditional Chinese medicine in, in Hefei. So, um, you later also pursued graduate studies in medicine and wondering um, if you could highlight some ways where the two practices, uh, Western and also traditional Chinese medicine, where they differ and where are they complementary? How, how that happens in oncology care in China today. It, do patients, for example, pursue both chemotherapy and then they also um, uh, talk to traditional Chinese medicine doctors for, for managing some of their other symptoms? And Residency in China, uh, in the hospitals, I often see patients receiving both. And so then the Western medicine doctor write one thing, then the Chinese medicine write another. So they often uh, coexisting. So I could see sometimes it might be uh, sequential. Let's say if a patient get chemotherapy, maybe during the recovery period, they may see the uh, traditional Chinese medicine doctor to balance their uh, immune system, you know, their yin and yang. So I could see that uh, coexisting. And so, yeah, definitely I, I see that uh, uh, more common in China, but, you know, obviously I haven't been in China for a while and practicing medicine there. Yeah, thank you so much for describing that. So mm -hmm. after you studied Western medicine in Guangzhou, you also, you moved to the University of Texas in San Antonio, in San Antonio to further your graduate studies. And what brought you to the United States? Yeah, so that time I came to, in 1992, I came to U.S. to pursue the clinical pharmacology PhD study in UT Texas Health Science Center. And so later, for family reason, I moved to New York State, uh, ended up doing internal medicine residency training <laughs> in Long Island. Uh, so I did not finish my PhD. However, the initial uh, training and even the uh, uh, lab research really uh, helped me uh, in research in general. I, I love research. I love to find out the underlying reason for certain things. And so that carried through even later in my clinical practice. Um, thank you so much for sharing that perspective and I'm um, just your journey. I would love to hear from you, um, how you decided to, uh, take a leap into industry after practicing as an internist in Indiana for several years. And it seems to me, you've like taken a lot of different leaps, uh, career leaps in, 
um, career leaps in your, um, in your life so far, first, um, going into traditional Chinese medicine and then going at, and then pivoting to uh, Western medicine and then deciding to move to the United States to study pharmacology. Um, and then ultimately deciding to complete your residency and clinical training. And so what made you decide to make the, um, last large leap of, of going into industry? Yeah, so I think it's, I love the research as I mentioned earlier in general. So while I was practicing medicine in Indiana, I conducted a few clinical trials. So later I joined the National Institute of Health as a medical officer. That time NIH was focusing on translational medicine. So they hired uh, um, people with a uh, doctor MD degree and to uh, monitor clinical trials. NIH sponsored clinical trials as well as a basic research in major academic center. And so uh, later my family uh, needed to move to New Jersey. So uh, there I wouldn't have an industry uh, government job. So uh, I joined the Bristol-Myers Squibb uh, for the hepatitis B um, program. So the common thread uh, when I was working in NIH, uh, I was in the uh, NIAID, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. So I was focusing on hepatitis. Uh, um, hepatitis B and C, so that uh, the uh, uh, the connection later I joined the uh, BMS for hepatitis B program. And BMS was the leading company at that time for HIV, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C. And uh, hepatitis B disproportionate genome sciences, and I also worked on hepatitis C. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Very interesting. And so from there, you, you, so you were working on hepatitis B at BMS. Um, and that was around the, uh, that was around 2007. What made you decide to turn your attention to your current focus on oncology and beginning with leading, being the medical affairs lead for Opdivo actually in the United States in 2013. I'm sure that was a, um, that's obviously a very big role and also a very big leap for such a blockbuster drug. Yeah, well, in 2013, after almost five years working in infectious disease uh, in BMS, I was thinking about what my next venture would be. And given we already had medications for hepatitis B and on the verge of having a curable, uh, not a uh, cocktail curable medication for hepatitis C and HIV was uh, under control by medications at that time too. So uh, BMS at that time was leading company in developing immune checkpoint inhibitors for cancer. So definitely was very exciting. So uh, I decided to join the oncology uh, department. And another reason for me to turn my focus to oncology was because both my parents died of cancer. So I thought it was, uh, um, uh, you know, why I couldn't help them much. It was comforting for me to work in oncology to contribute to the well-being of other cancer patients. How would you describe the impact that you have, um, that you're able to achieve with um, being involved in drug development on patients, even if it's indirect versus being the sort of lead physician or the primary care physician for patients um, who are, who are first-handedly experiencing some of those medical issues that um, you might, you might be leading the development for later on in your drug development career? Yeah, definitely. You know, as physicians, we always want to first do no harm, right? So, so you know, when patient is suffering uh, from the disease, it's it's heartbreaking. But at the same time, even this uh, suffering from 
the toxicities of medication, it's still very, very hard. I witnessed uh, patients let go of their treatment because of the severe side effects. And actually, my parents choose not to have have chemotherapy and because of the concerns of the side effects, right? So obviously, we want medications to kill the cancer, but at the same time, we definitely want a good quality of life. And many people question, do I want to live another months versus uh, suffer, you know, so much pain. So again, you know, it's a fine balance. It certainly is a fine balance. And do you think that in, I mean, besides on quality pharmaceuticals, do you think that we and drug development um, think enough about some of those, some of those hot side effects and what are the costs associated with um, life extending or life prolonging medications, especially in, in the oncology sector? Do you think that this um, as a sector as a whole, do we need to do a better job of thinking about it from this holistic point of view? Yeah, definitely. I think we should do more. And, you know, we see an uh, initial wave of uh, cancer-supported therapy uh, in the uh, maybe 70s, 80s, uh, with amgen leading uh, quite a few uh, medications for bone marrow toxicities for chemotherapy, right? However, with the um, uh, the entrance of target therapy, immunotherapy, we haven't seen any development in cancer supportive therapy for those unique side effects. You know, obviously I remember when I was working um, in Juno, the, the CAR-T related uh, cytokine release syndrome, right? FDA had to approve a IL-6 antibody um, based on very limited data to manage the CRS. So again, so I think that's uh, more attention and more investment and more companies should pay attention to this area because uh, um, you know, we have new medications for cancer, which was great, which is great. But at the same time, we definitely need to take care of the uh, the toxicities. Some of them are life threatening. Certainly, yes, some of them are life threatening, and I've seen CAR T being administered in the clinics before. And I remember one one anecdote that has stuck with me throughout the years is I had a patient who received CAR T, and um, she not only experienced cytokine release syndrome, which was treated with tocilizumab, but then she also experienced the aftermath of um, neurotoxicity as well. And I just remember, even in her various states of lucidness, um, she she spoke with me and. She said um, at the time, she was like, I wish I had never gone through this if I knew how bad the toxicity was. And of course, she might say something different and after she gets gets through the toxicity. Um, but I always like remember uh, I, that having that conversation was, okay, well, on one hand, you, you might have your life saved by this, um, by this medication, but on the other hand, the costs are so great as well that it makes someone even in that position to question whether or not it's worth it. And so I, that anecdote has always stuck with me. And that I think is what all is, um, is comp uh, particularly compelling about what on quality is trying to do. And you mentioned that you first joined on quality as a consultant first, can you share more about the origin story of on quality pharmaceuticals, how it came about, how the vision came about, and then what made you, I, I know you were um, certainly popular as a hire for the CMO position um, at the time that you decided to join on quality, but what, what about on quality's um, mission and vision resonated with you such that you decided to join? 
Yeah, sure. So, you know, at that time, actually, I mentioned quite a few companies contacted me and quite a few, many of them actually are in immunotherapy, the immune checkpoint inhibitor or CAR T, right? And that time I thought we already had uh, enough companies doing those kind of research. So I would rather to uh, join a company which uh, is innovative in try to uh, address a med need and, and on quality definitely is the one in a field not many people pay attention. So my, my you know, my own career always reflected in um, choosing uh, the field where to address a medical need. And so, yeah, obvious oncology vision that uh, helping cancer patients to dealing with uh, intolerable side effects appeals to me. Yeah, I joined uh, in 2018 initially um, in, as a consultant, mainly I was still working in Dendria. Also, I need to learn a little bit about uh, oncology. And so by 2019, uh, oncology already got an IND clearance from FDA for the lead compound to get into phase two clinical trials. That's when I made the transition to join oncology full time. Hmm. You said you had said that on quality focuses in an area where not a lot of companies, um, or, or not a lot of biotech companies or pharma companies are paying attention to. And why, why do you think that is so far? Because we understand obviously now that, uh, and, and as we had talked about before that toxicity associated with oncology products is a significant unmet medical need, but why is it, um, why is it that the industry has not, um, looked to solve this problem? Uh, um, at least um, so far in um, in the timeline that we we have covered. Yeah, I think there are multiple reasons. Why it's the timing? So if you look at the chemotherapy early on in the 60s, the 70s, and then you see 70s, 80s, you see a wave of supportive therapy for chemotherapy. I guess, you know, the initial focus is let's find the new therapy for cancer, right? Then after a while, people realize, okay, now we're using more more of this new therapy. What do we need to do with uh, the side effects. So it's a uh, timing. So I, we do think right now it's a good timing because, uh, you know, the uh, target therapy and the immunotherapy has been on the market for 10 to 20 years, uh, depends on which one. So timing is uh, one part. The other one is I, I see a lot of the supportive therapy fail. Um, we analyze, you know, the reasons behind it. We try to be very specific that we uh, identify compounds aiming at the underlying mechanism of the toxicities. So in a way, we call it a target supportive therapy because it's a very specific to the, the uh, cancer therapy, the class of cancer therapy, and not a general approach. What I, what I mean general approach is such as people using steroids for skin toxicities, right? Those are general approach. It doesn't matter which cancer medication, they're using steroids for skin toxicity. We actually develop a um, specific agents for skin toxicity based on the underlying mechanism. So that could be another reason, just as the general approach is not, a, uh, not a very targeted and maybe less effective. The other one is the uh, um, delivery. Often people giving systemic uh, 
medications such as IV or by mouth, but absorbed into the blood. This that may have an impact on the cancer outcome. So often because of that, uh, become less uh, not uh, successful. So we try to be very uh, specific in uh, tissue specific uh, delivery that to limit systemic exposure and to reduce interference with anti-cancer medication. So, yeah, I think we uh, that's how we look at it, the um, why there's not much attention or why there are uh, there is, you know, not many successful stories out there. And we try to deal with those underlying reasons. Got it. Okay. So being more targeted and then focusing on tissue specific delivery, those are the key challenges that Onquality is trying to overcome in its, in its effort to develop a pipeline of supportive treatments for oncology, uh, oncology treatments. And, yes. uh, and you, um, please remind me of your pipeline again, but I was also one, um, but I think you're developing at least currently, um, uh, supportive treatments for oncology treatments that are already marketed slash approved, but do you, can you also imagine a situation where you can provide a supportive treatment for a drug that, that, um, without the supportive treatment has such severe toxicities that it might not be approved. And so in other ways, providing a supportive therapy, um, that is, that can be, um, approved in conjunction with an oncology treatment, such as, for example, CAR T and tocilizumab um, in, in one package. Can you um, elaborate on on how Onquality is thinking about its pipeline strategy in terms of um, uh, de co-developing with both marketed and then also potentially in development treatments? Yes, I, I think that's a great uh, uh, idea. Uh, right now, we focus on approved drugs just because the patients are suffering. However, for the drug in development, you've already noticed uh, severe side effects. We could potentially collaborate and identify uh, potential medications to address the side effects to move the cancer drug forward, right? Because some cancer drugs end up being uh, stopped for development because of the severe side effects. So that that is a, a potential area for future. Uh, in, in regard to our quality pipeline, we focus on two areas, one called oncodermatology, those dealing with uh, skin side effects from cancer therapy. The other one called oncogi, which is dealing with uh, uh, GI side effects associated with uh, cancer therapy. So um, yeah, we, we have one leading component called OQ011, currently in phase two trials for VGF receptor inhibitor induced hand first skin reaction. And we have uh, four other pipelines uh, are getting ready uh, into clinical trials. So, so we're in the process of uh, filing uh, pre and IND meetings with FDA. Got it. And you recently presented some exciting preclinical as well as KOL survey data at ASCA this year, if I remember correctly. Can you tell us more about the results of these presentations? Yes, uh, we presented the preclinical study of OK051, a gut restricted CTK46 inhibitor for chemotherapy induced diarrhea. It is an online publication at ASCO. However, we had an oral presentation at AACR in April this year, which because it's preclinical data, so AACR is more relevant. Um, so we appreciated and honored to have uh, the oral presentation there. Um, so we are 
are very excited. Uh, we already have a pre-ID meeting scheduled with FDA on this uh, compound, and uh, we are looking forward to file IND later this year. The, another one is uh, the survey for the treatment pattern by uh, oncologists for EGFR inhibitor-induced rash. We try to identify or quantify the MED needs uh, among oncologists and their thought about uh, the how to manage this condition, what they are doing now, and uh, what do they may need. And majority of the oncologists say they would love to use a novel agent. And then Onquality recently raised a Series A slash A plus of 35 million from Shiyu Capital, Matrix Partners China, Biotrack, um, Cash Capital, Innovation Ventures, as well as Free S Fund. Um, and can you tell us more about what it was like to raise a Series A, um, particularly as a China-based biotech company, um, and then also with cross-border? investors? How did you pick your investors or how did your company and board uh, pick your investors? And um, what is perhaps different or not different about working with cross-border investors? And uh, I ask this question because a lot of our listeners are new to the China biotech scene. And so I think they're hoping to learn um, how the investor profiles may or may not be different than what they're familiar with in the United States. Yeah, so, um, you know, our founder, Shi Zhang, who did the heavy lifting, I, I just provided support. And because most of the, the all, all the investors were from China, uh, whether there is a difference, um, I guess maybe because uh, we were in the early uh, fundraising, the Series A+. A+ plus, and so I think they more care about the team. You know, the team structure, whether you are experienced enough, obviously the pipeline and med need are important. I think the common thread is what's the value uh, of your pipeline and the company from both US and uh, China investor point of view. Um, so um, obviously we like to pick investors who have uh, healthcare investment experience and all also have a global investment experience because uh, on quality based in both the US and China and uh, some of the trials are conducted uh, in US. So we do like um, the uh, investors who have those experience. Got it, thank you. And you had mentioned that your um, some of the trials that you're conducting are in China, some of them you're conducting are in the US. How do you decide you know, as the as the chief medical officer, how do you decide um, where to place your clinical trials now that you're given a much wider geographic area to cover? And um, how, what regulatory considerations do you have to keep in mind when you pick your clinical trial sites? Yeah, I mean, you know, we started with clinical trials in U.S. mainly because uh, the uh, the environment is more mature and, you know, the, the credibility of the data. However, you know, as China is get, getting more and more mature in conducting clinical trials, we are moving forward to try to do trials on both sides to tap into the patient volume in China. And so maybe even other parts of the world. And so for our current phase two trials, we started part one in US. Um, however, for the part two, we will expand to China and India. 
I see. Yeah. And I asked that question also because we had a earlier, uh, earlier in our season, we had a conversation with um, Dr. George Chen, who is the CEO of D3Bio. And he talked about his experience of leading the parallel development of Tegreso, um while he was at AstraZeneca and, and specifically talked about the advantage of interweaving some of these parallel clinical trials in the US and China. In, in this case, it was for lung cancer drug development, um, such that you can actually speed up global, um, global um, development and also approval for the drug that is, um, by having multiple, multiple clinical sites and, um, in different parts of the world where um, patient volume is higher, for example, in uh, lung cancer in China. And so, um, just wanted to get your perspective on that as well. Yes. Yeah. I totally agree with that. Uh, we are doing the similar, uh, ways uh, that, uh, filing, um, you know, IND, in China and the U.S., uh, and we try to have simultaneous uh, uh, regulatory uh, timelines, so this way we could coordinate. And last but not least, I was wondering if you can share some more information about how you, you think the global biotech market will evolve in the next decade as someone who's really on the cusp of seeing this evolve from the vantage point of um, focusing both on the U.S. and also in China and working with such a, a multicultural and cross-border team. Like, What are your predictions for the role of these types of collaborations in the future? Yeah, so instead of prediction, maybe I will share some of my hopes because it's hard to predict, but I do hope uh, more and more companies in China will um, you know, rise up and develop first-in-class or best-in-class or first-in-disease medications. Right? I do hope cancer-supported therapy will get more attention and so patients will uh, have better quality of life. I would like to see increasing collaboration across the borders. And we see sometimes, uh, you know, because of COVID, it made it more challenge. I do hope uh, past COVID, we will see more collaboration across the borders. I think COVID actually has created a unique scenario for collaboration in some ways um, because of all the different ways that the pandemic has played out both in the United States and China and in other countries. And so, for example, um, when the United States was under pretty severe lockdown for the pandemic and clinical trials were not running, they were like running just fine in China. And now <laughs> we're kind of seeing the vice versa happen with the lockdown in China and things are getting back to normal in the United States. And so that, that might be a situation well knock on wood hopefully that situation doesn't ever arise again in the future but um but if it does in i think in a lot of ways covid actually exposed how a cross-border collaboration and a global um, footprint on clinical trial development can be beneficial to companies that is very true yes you look at the bright side right and on the other hand you know obviously we were able to engage uh, virtually right that helped to Sure, certainly. Yes, the virtual collaboration environment um, and the fact that it, it, it's now normalized across the world, that has certainly made collaboration a lot easier um, for the future as well. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so last, uh, last thoughts here are, you know, what is next for Unquality? What are you looking yeah. forward to? Yeah, so in addition to uh, advance my our uh, lead company, OKO011, into the part two uh, stage, uh, which it should be soon. We are also advancing additional four pipeline compounds into clinical stage. This includes uh, OKO036 for capacitive-induced hand foot syndrome, OKL025 for EGFR inhibitor-induced skin rash, as well as OKL012 for target 
therapy-induced hand for skin reaction, and OQL051 for chemotherapy-induced diarrhea. So very busy, very exciting. Uh, we're looking forward to have uh, uh, multiple clinical trials uh, next year. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed our conversation today as much as we did. For an episode recap, updates on more episodes, and our writings, you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and our website at behindbiotech.com. 